You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello and welcome to episode number 27 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. Back at the beginning of season two, we began the conversation by talking about crowdsourcing and collaboration. And so today I have the distinct pleasure of continuing the conversation around crowdsourcing with Jen Beardsley of the Bureau of Reclamation and Taylor Gilliland of the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering at the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Jen and Taylor described some of their most interesting crowdsourcing projects how their organizations have come into the world of crowdsourcing as a way to solve problems, and also how these projects have really been able to create and drive collaboration. This was a fun conversation. Please enjoy. Hello, Jen and Taylor. Welcome to the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Happy to be here. Nice. Can you guys introduce yourselves, you know, kind of think keeping with this idea that uh, if you were meeting somebody for the first time, how would you tell them about yourselves and, and your work and maybe how crowdsourcing factors into your introduction, if it does or doesn't? Jen, do you want to start off? Uh, sh- sure. So introducing myself to someone and talking about work is always an interesting thing. So uh, Jen Beardsley, and then my whole title is Vice Competitions Program Administrator. And I work for the federal government. I work for one of the smaller smaller agencies, Bureau of Reclamation. So I oversee the administrative aspects of our program to carry out these competitions and prize competitions. So when I would talk to someone about that, and then talking with my husband, he always calls me the Vanna White of our agency. <laughs> I do this beautiful handing out of prize money. But it is something where it's this opportunity to work in a program that's creative and problem solving, which is pretty cool. Nice. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of getting some insights into that program as we get further into the conversation. Uh, Taylor, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so my official title is Senior Advisor for Innovation Programs. I'm at the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering at the National Institutes of Health. The long title there, but essentially my job is to help our agency think about new ways to accelerate biomedical innovation. How can we bring in new solvers, new people, new ideas into our existing really robust ecosystem of biomedical innovation to accelerate the development of new technologies that can actually help improve people's lives and help improve clinical outcomes for patients. Oh, that's fantastic. And where are you joining from today, uh, Taylor? Yeah, I'm here in uh, Washington, D.C. Nice. And Jen, where are you? I am in Denver, Colorado. So just, you know, a tiny bit of distance between you guys. It's great to have you on the show today, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. You know, when we spoke earlier, I had mentioned that I'd had the opportunity to explore some of this crowdsourcing as a way to collaborate sort of this topic on the podcast in a previous episode. That led me to both of you in terms of both of you are involved with sort of the the application, I guess, of of crowdsourcing to solve actual problems. So problems that you guys are facing in your line of work. But I kind of wanted to maybe start with kind of a really basic question, and that is, how do you describe crowdsourcing to people? Like, 
obviously it, it probably comes up in conversation. So how, how do you open that conversation to say, here's, here's what it is and here's what it can do? So when I do come into these conversations, it's, it's always an interesting challenge to describe it. But usually when I'm talking casually with my friends, it's, um, hey, it's the biggest brainstorming event you've ever seen in your life. But it becomes this fun brainstorming event that if you can describe what you want to do and how it addresses someone's issue or what you're trying to solve, you get money for it. So for me, that's how we talk about it and then go into the competition discussions about what we look for and supporting agency needs. Nice. Does your introduction of crowdsourcing differ much from that, Taylor? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's tapping into that collective brain power that's outside of your organization. And that's why I I typically describe crowdsourcing as being uh, a type of open innovation. And that is recognizing that there's that old adage, or maybe it's not even old, I don't know, but in in business that, you know, no matter where you are, no matter who, who you work for, there's always a lot more people who are smarter outside of your organization than just inside the walls of your own organization. So it's, recognizing that and tapping into that intelligence, that creativity, that thinking outside the box that those beyond your own organization can bring to the projects, the activities, the initiatives that you're carrying out within your own organization. So really going out beyond yourselves and, and tapping into that power, that ability of the crowd, wherever that crowd may be. So just following along on that is, I mean, this is not a, a method that's been used widely in the past, like it's it's an emerging area, I would suggest. And I'm curious how you, not so much how you, but how did your agency kind of come to this idea that we we want to try this out? What was the what was the spark that started this thing going? Yeah, so I, I, in some ways, I would say um, at the National Institutes of Health, you know, we've we've been using uh, variations of crowdsourcing for you know since our initiation, and that we. For the, our, our traditional mechanism, the majority of what we do is we give out uh, funds to brilliant scientists, clinicians, researchers all around the country, around the world to go out and do high quality scientific research that can be eventually translated into tangible benefits to patients, to humans. However, you know, this more modern interpretation of open innovation really, I think, Maybe could be pointed to 2010, actually, in the passage of a particular law that, that Jen and I are quite familiar with uh, here in the United States that gave all of the federal government the ability to run a particular type of crowdsourcing activity, what we call prize competitions or challenges. And I'm sure we're going to get plenty into that today. But really, since then, we've seen this explosion of activity across the U.S. government and embracing this open innovation, this crowdsourcing approach and going beyond our traditional mechanisms that we've been relying upon for decades to drive innovation, to advance our agency missions. So I can say over the past you know, decade or a little more than then, that we've really been embracing this as a strategic part of our, our, uh, our agendas. Jen, how does that story play out for your agency? So it's very similar. The passage of the American Competes Law was very helpful and instrumental in, in opening up minds to being able to do a crowdsourcing type effort. It really got going in our agency when um, the U.S. uh, Agency for International Development reached out to Reclamation 
We have in our research and development office, we have desalination and water purification program. Well, USAID reached out to us to see if we could partner on a competition with them. We provided some technical services, we provided technical experts, and we provided a facility for all these teams to come in and test or, you know, do this challenge of, can we take that yucky water and make it good, right? Or make it better or useful. So that really got our agency's eyes, I think, opened to, you know, this is a good tool. Here's an opportunity for us to take some of the most pressing or hard issues that we've been facing in, in carrying out our mission, here's an opportunity for us to get these new fresh starting places in research or find something that can get us a step further towards a tool or a widget that we can use to do our operations better or our maintenance or make our facilities last longer. So it really got going when we had that invite and we were able to showcase what impacts our potential from the crowdsource. Right. So for the Bureau of Reclamation, have there have you run a, a few competitions now? Like a what does the what does the stable of projects kind of look like? So we've run quite a few. So we joined in on that collaboration with USAID in 2014, and since then we've launched 30 competitions. Holy. Right? <laughs> so it started out as these pilot type competitions, and we organized a competition program by theme area. So everywhere that we thought reclamation had an intersector and an opportunity for advancement or could take and use advancement, um, we try to align it there. So we, we have competitions that fall under the header of the environment. We have competitions that fall under infrastructure because we deliver water, we generate power. And then we have competitions that fall under water. So advanced water treatment of water supplies so our, our scope of our competitions have ranged from protecting our facilities or making them last longer. So tell us how to stop animals from burrowing in on, on our canals to tell us how better or show us a method or compete against the weather forecaster to tell us what the temperature increase of precipitation is going to be at these certain outlooks and can you do better? And all of that information comes back and it's, hopefully outcomes that can help us do our jobs better, help us manage our water better or more efficiently or be more efficient in our hydropower production. I want to dig into the sort of the steps in the process, but I want to also ask Taylor sort of what does, what do projects for your agency look like? What kinds of things are in the box? Yeah, you know, I, I think under the umbrella of open innovation, you know, I have to also, you know, definitely cite our uh, citizen science efforts, um, which I think are you know, really critical as well. Open data collaboration, another kind of crowdsourcing approach, uh, open dialogue, open conversation with with patients and advocacy groups who are, you know, working towards our mission, but specifically on challenges and prize competitions, which is really where my kind of expertise has has laid over the past few years at NIH and now my role at the uh, Biomedical Engineering Institute you know, we've run almost, you know, we're, we're a little more prolific than, than reclamation, but I think compared to size, we're not nearly as, as active. You know, we've run about 60 or 70 prize competitions uh, over the past 10 years. So it's becoming a little more part of, of our, uh, what I like to call our tool and our toolkit for accelerating biomedical innovation. Mm-hmm. And just like in reclamation, it really runs the gamut across a wide variety of things. You know, we've run a major multi-million dollar competition on getting the 
entrepreneurs and researchers and engineers to create new devices, new diagnostics to tell a patient, do you have a, a bacterial infection or a viral infection? And if it's bacterial, is it resistant to certain antibiotics? And if you tell somebody within 90 minutes, instead of the normal one to two days that that would take in a clinic, something big, grand scale like that. And then down to incentivizing, you know, high school students to think about neuroethics. I don't know about you all in high school. I never once thought about neuroethics. Um, And yet we had these amazing uh, essays written by high school students, part of a competition that we wrote or you know, incentivizing Native American and Alaska Native communities to think about what are some what are some approaches that they have taken to addressing issues in their community, and what can the rest of us learn from their approaches? We've uh, run these competitions every year for um, biomedical engineering undergraduate students. You know, submit their prototype designs for prosthetic limbs or new surgery devices. You know, it's really incredible to see what's coming um, out of young minds. So. I think my, my kind of takeaway is this mechanism is so flexible and can be used to solve so many different problems across so many different scales and bring in so many different types of innovators, whether they're your traditional people who are involved in your ecosystem or those who are, have never been involved before that you're finally bringing in for the first time. Right. So now I'm kind of curious about the kinds of people and the kinds of ideas that are coming to light. So I'm kind of curious, Jen, what you would, if I was to ask the question, what's been one of the standout projects or ideas or something that's submitted through the challenge and prize method, is there an example that just stands out in your mind as kind of a the, the big wow factor? Like, wow, I never would have thought that would have come in. I would have been able to solve that problem or whatever it might be. That's a really good question. Um, and that's one of the things that I have this fantastic, I call them the dream team, a fantastic team of game experts that help support our prize competitions um, and run the program. But we talk about our solvers all the time and where they're coming from. And we've had solvers with multiple different competitions. And thinking back, you know, we've had some great stories and ideas come to us. We ran a competition about eradicating the quagga muscle from open water. Quagga muscles present an operational and a maintenance headache for those of us that operate dams um, and have those facilities because they just, they clog. And what do you do with all these shells, right? Yeah. So we ran this competition. We had a number of uh, solutions submitted, but the one that's really advancing and recognition is followed on to continue a partnership with is one where it came in and the solvers based their solution on this contagious and I always say this to this contagious cancer that was species specific within like, I think it was the Tasmanian devil. Well, they did some research to figure out how could they take that concept and introduce it into the muscles. I mean, there's, there's a number of steps before something like that could ever, you know, make it to market or be used in the environment. Right. Um, But that was, that's one where I think it, there was that aha moment of something different than scraping or having something else eat it or, you know, take care of it chemically. Yeah. Um, the other one that we thought was fun, and I think we went into the competition thinking we would have uh, electronics or, you know, little robots walking in pipelines to detect leaks or these flaws in our pipelines. And one of the, I wouldn't have never thought of it, but one of the solutions that our experts excited was, 
you know, why can't we use dogs to walk these buried pipeline routes? If there's something in there they can smell, then they can help us zero in on where there may be a small leak. Yeah. And I, I think that's being used in the industry, but it was something we just hadn't thought through as something for our industry. That's fantastic. Those I've worked myself, I, I have a background as a biologist, so I sort of have been plugged into that invasive species control. And it's I think that's interesting to take, you know, a lesson from you know the complete other side of the world, some experience that somebody had or some knowledge and tie these things together. Taylor, um, what kind of examples come to mind? For you and your uh, organization, I mean, I think uh, well, nothing as cool as Tasmanian devils and, and quagga mussels and, and you know, <laughs> uh, pipeline sniffing dogs. But uh, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. You know, some of the things that have really impressed me is one challenge that's been run a couple times by one of our institutes here at NIH that focuses on translational science or the, the science behind how basic discoveries get turned into uh, medical products, essentially. You know, they run this challenge every year to, to increase awareness of rare diseases. And by definition, those are diseases that affect fewer than 200,000 Americans every year. And it's just truly incredible seeing the diversity of ideas that come in of how can we raise awareness about these conditions and the importance of, you know, conducting research, um, both basic and, and clinical research on these conditions when they affect relatively few people, although cumulatively they affect millions. One last year that I, I highly recommend everyone, if you, if you Google rare diseases are not rare challenge, um, there's this amazing video of spoken word poetry done by a, um, a young individual who has a rare disease and just seeing him advocate and through this beautiful spoken word poetry and communicate why it's important. When normally we talk about it in dry technical scientific language, this is not a typical government activity, you know, <laughs> to produce like, you know, music video quality spoken word poetry, right? And yet, I think that's more impactful than any publication in a scientific journal could maybe be, you know, in communicating the importance of this. So that's definitely one. Some other ones that I like to point out and use as examples admittedly did not come from the National Institutes of Health. So I'm going to uh, steal from our or borrow from our <laughs> sibling agencies in the government. And one was a, a, a design challenge for uh, personal protective equipment. And we've all gotten so familiar with PPE, that acronym here during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but during Ebola, there was a need to design better ventilated, more comfortable equipment in Ebola endemic zones in Sub-Saharan Africa, while at the same time providing a similar level of protection for the people wearing them. And I believe uh, one of the winners of that challenge was actually a wedding dress designer. <laughs> now talk about someone who is not a typical government contractor, right? you know, someone who's not a typical government grantee. You know, they came in with their knowledge of textiles, their knowledge of, of wedding dress design, and apply that to PPE, which is exactly what we want in open innovation, bringing the people who have these insights that we never would normally tap into through our traditional processes. So that's kind of a challenge and prize competition manager lore right there. Jen's nodding her head. I know our listeners can't see that, but um, <laughs> it's a one we often use to, to cite. And then another very recent one, a sibling agency within the Department of Health and Human Services, they're running this really cool um, mask innovation challenge. You know, an another thing, right, in the pandemic, we've learned 
we're going to be around masks for a long time. And they've had these competitive, yep, and looks like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've got mine right here, yeah. Guys modeling his there. And, you know, you, you, we saw some, you know, maybe some traditional competitors come in, but then we also saw Amazon come in and then Levi Strauss. Okay, I didn't think the people who make my jeans, but I guess, yeah, they're, they're under, they they're, have a lot of research on, on materials that we wear. But then what I really loved is one of the winners of their first round of their challenge out of 10, along with Amazon and Levi Strauss, these major corporations, um, was uh, a mom who had a young child who, you know, wasn't comfortable wearing masks. And she developed what she called the passy mask, essentially a mask that is held to the face via a pacifier. Huh? And that is it's brilliant. I mean, it's not something that I think we would ever would have come up with in a government R&D lab. Yeah. And yet now she's competing alongside with her kind of small companies competing against Amazon and, and Levi Strauss for the next phase of this competition. And like, there you go. That is open innovation. That is crowdsourcing right there. Uh, yeah. I, love, I just had to share that story. It, it sounds like from somebody who organizes, you know, these kinds of prize challenges that that one of the biggest challenges is getting the idea or getting the, the question in front of the right people, maybe I wouldn't even say right people, just getting them in front of people who have the potential to have some insight or some something to contribute. Is there a particular way that that happens? So that is a very important aspect of, of a successful prize competition is that outreach, that amplification. I think for some of our agencies, it's not the, not the most flashy thing coming from our agencies, but having the partnerships and then tapping into the power of social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, that helps get a word out, um, especially if you can tap into that large community that keeps um, amplifying it beyond. Um, I think that's where we see the greatest successes. Is there is there also um, a need to sort of phrase the kinds of, put the challenge in a particular context or, or ask the right question, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something I work so much with, with our, our scientists and clinicians and, and researchers here at NIH is to make sure that we are communicating to a wide variety of solvers using accessible language. I mean, that's really a, a key aspect of advertising any challenge competition and getting folks engaged. You know, we're very fortunate. Um, the U.S. government has a, a, a platform, an online platform, just a quick plug for challenge.gov. For anyone out there who wants to go and see, you know, what are all of the active and historical prize competitions that the U.S. government has run, please go check that out, challenge.gov. That's one of the great ways, platforms we have to, to advertise our, our competitions. But I think with the, with the theme of this podcast, one of the best ways we have to engage those non-traditional solvers, those non-traditional innovators in our prize competitions is through collaboration. You know, getting non-governmental organizations, companies, advocacy groups, using this mechanism to partner with those outside government to amplify our opportunity and to, um, you know, support uh, participants as they compete in our challenges, I think is also critical. So if I'm sort of picking up that thread a little bit, what you're saying is that your methodology is actually creating an opportunity for collaboration within the government just to deliver the prize or deliver the project, I guess, in addition to whatever collaboration might happen in the process itself, like say amongst what you call them solvers, 
Does that do you see that too? Collaboration amongst solvers? I'll just jump in here and then and let Jim take it from there. Absolutely. I mean, I think while we do frame this in terms of a competition, you know, there are there is some competitive aspect to it. Absolutely. You know, not everyone will win the cash prize at the end of the at the end of the challenge. That being said, there we oftentimes can even structure the competition if it's, you know, uh, multiple phases, there'll be opportunities for the winners to all meet each other and maybe team up and especially for really complex really technologically challenging competitions where they have to develop a diagnostic device or, you know, build some type of highly complex product. You know, we tend to engineer into the competition, you know, abilities for solvers or, you know, competitors to team up and to work together and say, hey, I have a really good way of of tackling this aspect of the challenge, but I'm kind of weak on another aspect. Would you like to work with me? We try and provide those platforms for them to identify who they are and then to kind of communicate what their strengths are and maybe where they could use some help. And that way they can kind of team up and actually as a team have a better chance of winning the competition. Jen, anything to add to that? Uh, you bet. So uh, the competitions, I think, bring exactly what you're saying. It's collaboration at all levels. It's internal within our agencies. It's in, internal across the uh, government agencies. We've partnered with Fed, um, state agencies, local agencies, private industry. And I think that's what helps bring things together. Uh, the other piece that we're seeing is when we work with some of our vendors, they have exactly what Taylor's talking about with that platform where somebody may have this great idea, but they need a team to help bring it together to execute it. So they have these opportunities for teaming on their platforms, which I think brings things together. It makes even for a, a greater competition where you may see even greater advancements in innovation or that technology. One other aspect that we've started doing, and Taylor mentioned these multi-phase competitions, we've also started providing some subject matter expertise that once we get these phase one winners, uh, they can collaborate with our experts on their solutions and continued development of it. And then we'll, in one competition, we'll bring in um, some accelerators. But it's really cool when we're able to bring these winning solutions and those teams together in different different forms to share information or to talk about, you know, what are the next steps in the competition. We just recently had one of those where we had one team struggling with supply chain Mm -hmm. issues. Surprise, right? But another team that was familiar with that supply chain and in that area where that that other team was, was able to give them some ideas about how to maybe get past some of those hurdles. So, Here's an opportunity. We have two teams competing against each other, but you know what? They care enough about that outcome that they're going to tell each other how to overcome some of the hurdles they're having with putting pieces and parts. I'm, I'm always gratified to hear that the experts, you know, in a lot of these agencies, and I've worked within government myself, where the experts feel that they should have the answers and you shouldn't have to go out to the crowd. It is gratifying to hear how experts are getting involved with the process so that it's actually a a way to bring, just bring better ideas to the table. Do you often encounter sort of resistance from, from the experts? I'm using air quotes. I, I can join in on this one. I do. I, I do find that our experts will opine on uh, difficult issues or really stalled out of research. 
openly within the agency, but feel that maybe not all of my experts are like this, but um, maybe they feel like they already know everything that's out there, yeah. right? We've tried it all. We've talked with them all. But sometimes those are the best issues to take to a competition. If you can bring the experts along to say, all right, you have to let your brain go. <laughs> let's get this, let's get this problem statement written that across all industries, across all expertise and non-experts, they can wrap their brain around it and give new ideas. And it's okay that it might be something that you would say never works, but take the moment to look in there because there might be that one little piece of golden nugget that helps you move beyond where you've been stalled out. So <laughs> it can take a little bit to open up in your space. Thanks. Uh, how does it show up for you, uh, Taylor? Well, initially, it's it's kind of uh, not being familiar with this idea of open innovation, not being it, I really experienced with the idea of crowdsourcing and the way we've been talking about it. So initially, that's that's that resistance you might run into at the beginning, and then you know sometimes yeah, there there can be in some circles you know um, a bit of ivory towerness, and we need to just open our minds to the fact that you don't have to always have a PhD or an MD with decades of experience in biomedical research to be able to have really impactful, innovative, creative ideas that could really help us at, here at NIH advance our mission. So I think those are the two kind of resistance sometimes can run into. We're doing a lot better on the latter and, and we're definitely working uh, on the prior to get more buy-in to um, tapping into that wisdom of the crowd and diversifying the, the, the type of people who are participating in, in our NIH-funded activities. When I spoke with the folks from from NASA about this, the the comment they made was that usually the results are what sways people the most. Is that not only is it super cost effective, and there's all of these other other reasons, but just seeing what comes of asking the question, like you you talked about the the wedding dress designer being able to contribute to a you know a, a significant problem. I kind of want to go to this question around sort of the opposite of the experts. I I do you see people that you would not expect involved in the challenges. So what has been sort of the most unique participant in your most unique solver in one of these challenges? I think for me, it would be kids. Like how do they, how do youth get involved or, or people who are just completely different area of expertise? Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking that through, you know, we've had some great people compete and team up. Um, I always love the story about a father teaming up with his sons. One was an, uh -huh. his, one son was an engineer and one was a, I think he said, a, into gaming or something to that effect. And they, they did a great job implementing dad's vision and pulling this, pulling off a year long forecasting competition. I do find it interesting that the construct of the competition and and if you're asking for just a written idea versus a multi-phase where you want them to take it all the way to something you can test makes a difference in the composition of the people that come to the table with ideas. Yeah. If it's just a paper and it's putting the idea on paper, I think you get a more diverse background of, of potential solutions from that broader community right when it gets into they see that it's going to have to go to prototyping that might discourage because we do have solvers where it's like yeah i i love that idea and i'm glad i gave it to you because i want to see the bigger picture i want to see you know this get resolved or you know advancements in being able to do this better 
but I have a day job. I, I can't <laughs> go do this piece to turn it into that widget to prototype. So right. it's, it's always cool to see when like an architect can give us solutions for how to get dirt out of a reservoir or how to treat water or other aspects. And it's, it's one of those great, great stories where that's from a different perspective. And is there an element of that in that sometimes the idea is the easiest part and connecting it to implementation is much harder? And so maybe that's where the additional support is required? You got it. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference. And if you can bring additional partnerships in to accelerate those ideas or have support, it's a big, a big bonus in those competitions. How about, how about you, Taylor? Is anybody, have you seen any sort of standout participants that just make you either scratch your head and go, wow, I didn't think, you know, a four-year-old could come up with that or. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I've mentioned a couple already. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, high school students writing about neuroethics, right? Um, yeah. Not something I typically would have thought, but an- another one, again, kind of going back to the, how effective this mechanism can be at bringing in those non-traditional participants, those people outside of your normal ecosystem of, of contributors to your agency's mission. Or, and one really that kind of touched me was a couple of years ago, a couple of our components of NIH launched this um, challenge for targeted to 16 to 18 year olds. So again, that kind of high school population to share their ideas and share their stories about how they would reduce stigma and, and social barriers that they face when seeking mental health treatment, especially for racial and ethnic minority populations. In this country, we're obviously grappling with, and have been for quite some time, grappling with social equity, social justice issues, and specifically looking at the area of mental health treatment. And there's been a lot of disparities there. Extensive research done, you know, wonderful NIH-funded work being done and how we can address them. And then here we are, we're like, well, why don't we go ask teenagers? How would they, what are their ideas to address the barriers that they may face, especially if they are racial and ethnic minorities? And what can we learn from them when they're trying to seek mental health treatment? What are the stigmas that they face? And just going straight to them and soliciting their ideas. And that really, is something to me, really spoke to the power of, of this mechanism and open innovation and going beyond our traditional clinician or biomedical researcher or clinical researcher or psychologist at universities or top research institutions and going straight to the to the students themselves and having them tell us directly. Yeah. It's one thing I like about the crowdsourcing approach is that it's it kind of embodies inclusiveness. Like it's it doesn't work without inclusiveness, which is what makes it such a such a strong way of doing things. So we're we're getting towards the end and I I kind of want to get a sense from you of what are the barriers for organizations who maybe have never done crowdsourcing, maybe have an inkling what it is, but think that they may have some, some problem, some issue, something they want to try it out on. What, what do they need to consider when sort of starting down this, down this path? One of the barriers is, you know, we talked a bit about it, is just letting go of the regular rules I think that's something I come from a strong engineering agency and, you know, we have set ways and sometimes it's okay to let people come in with things that are not that set way. So let go of the rules. It's okay. I think the other piece that may come into the mix or I advise someone heading into a competition or thinking about it, cut your teeth on something that you can break down into the simplest terms to get 
that broad crowd excited about and that broad crowd can understand. That's going to bring you the greatest number of responses to your ask, but it's also going to to help you do all your lessons learned as you work through these competitions. Every competition comes up with its own set of unique challenges, all your questions that come up that that's okay. It doesn't mean your competition's a failure. It just means that you have something else to sort out while you're running that competition. And the other thing I would advise someone is walk into it with that open mind and walk into it being okay that if you don't get that submission that hits the mark of where you wanted to land at the end of the day, that's okay because that's also a success. That also tells you something about characterization of that problem. It tells you something about, you know, maybe we are on the right path or it tells you, you know, maybe maybe there's another angle to come at this problem. Let's rethink it and, and try it again. So a little bit of an experimentation mindset. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah. Taylor, what are you what are your thoughts in that area? Yeah, I'm gonna have to echo a lot of what Jen said. Um, absolutely that that open mindset and persistence. I mean, especially in long-standing organizations that may be not on the cutting edge of open innovation or crowdsourcing approaches, this can be new and new can be scary and different. And so you just need to, you know, really have the evidence. There is plenty of evidence out there to show that this approach is beneficial to organizations, both private sector, nonprofit and governmental. We have tons of examples we can share with you. We have a lot on this podcast already. So come armed with that information, have conviction in your approach that this is the right way to solve your problem that you are facing and just be willing to spend some time convincing people throughout your organization that while the the traditional mechanisms are great and they achieve a lot, there are some problems that are just unique and can be uniquely solved through uh, crowdsourcing. The thought that comes to mind as you're, you were speaking there is, are there benefits to organizations, to an organization, say, taking on a crowdsourcing approach that is they kind of go beyond the solution to the problem. And I'm thinking reputation, I'm thinking sort of just awareness of issues. Do you see some of those benefits as well for your agencies? Yeah, it's hard to describe it, I guess, uh, across a um, nearly $50 billion a year organization. You know, we're only committing about... Wait, you don't have that, you don't have those numbers right there? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say I, you know, I can point to, you know, demonstrable specific benefits across the agency as a whole, but within, you know, the individual units of this large organization, I would say bringing those new solvers into our, into our ecosystem, I think really has had tangible benefits because, you know, while we maybe can't point to them right now, what you're especially with the the challenges we do with youth, you're engaging them in the excitement of biomedical research. You're engaging them in showing them that their ideas are good and can help, you know, the, the world's leading biomedical research agency help deliver tangible benefits to patients. So I think, you know, inspiring the next generation of the people who will be working for or, or in support of our organizations is, is something bringing in those out-of-the-box ideas that you just never would have thought of and really just diversifying our approaches uh, with the understanding that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to our agency's mission. So I, I know that 
don't know if that actually answers your question or <laughs> maybe opens up more, but that's what I got right now. <laughs> it, it does kind of kind of point to the fact that there is more beyond this challenge and the prize and the solution. There's there's actually a little bit more in in the orbit as well. So, Jen, anything you wanted to add to that? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think Taylor makes some really great points. I think providing these opportunities for this crowd to come to the mix on providing ideas or potentially finding solutions that are, are something bigger than themselves, I think it's always a really motivating thing. And we, we see solvers that come into us and tell us, you know, I love thinking this problem through and Having an opportunity to share my thought about how to solve that is is a big deal. So they find that very motivating. We do have that opportunity where it's that personal gratification I get versus I'm submitting this idea because I know I can go around and commercialize it, which is fabulous too. Um, we'll always love to see that happen. But there's that that genuine, I want to help you fix something and I'd like to fix it together. So it's really cool. That's very nice. So I have just a couple of sort of short answer kind of wrap-up questions. But before I jump to those, I'm curious, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to add or something to uh, to expand on at all? I don't write off. I think we've had a great conversation. I think there's a whole host of additional conversations related to competitions and related to outcomes and people's experiences in it that it's, it's a whole nother story, right? Holy <laughs> Other than episode, yeah. <laughs> it's a great opportunity to collaborate everywhere. That's fantastic. Taylor, anything that we left out? Um, no, I think we, we covered a lot today. And, uh, you know, I, I remember the last thing I would mention for going to the next section is just the, the diversity of the types of problems that this approach can be used to solve. And while it is a competition, and at least the, the type of open innovation we've been discussing that Jen and I are most familiar with, it obviously leads to very collaborative activities. But I mean, we've covered things from ideation competitions, you know, something that we've done a lot of NIH, a lot of other agencies do, they run data science competitions, you know, getting coders around the country to develop new algorithms or analyze underutilized data sets, um, awareness campaigns, as I mentioned about rare diseases, technology product development, such as like mobile apps and bioengineering designs and diagnostic devices. So I guess the, the part I want to leave your listeners with is this approach can be tailored to solve a lot of different problems across a great diversity of scale, of complexity, of the number and types of solvers you would need. So I guess that would be the thing I would leave with is it's, it's, it's a very versatile mechanism. It doesn't, it's, you know, doesn't solve all problems, but I would just leave you with to, it can be used to solve aspects of just about every problem in my opinion. Right. So it's a, a matter of at the very least, crowdsourcing can be applied to parts of just about every kind of problem you can come up with. I would agree with that. I would agree also. Well, I, I know uh, we're coming towards the end, so I thought yeah, I have a couple of questions. One is sort of my, my standard question, but I'll start with one that's a little more focused on crowdsourcing, and that is if you had the ability to sort of pick a problem that you'd like to see crowdsourcing applied to, and it doesn't, and I'm not suggesting it has to be one you would face with your agency, maybe just a a problem at large that you think crowdsourcing would be really cool to to apply uh, as, as a method, what would you suggest? So I was thinking about this and I asked a couple, um, I asked my advice team about this and one immediately popped in and she goes, time travel. Of course, we need more time and we need to be able to travel. So 
that was fun. Um, but I had a more serious uh, discussion with my son, who's 11, and he hit on the point of homework. <laughs> and then the conversation travels into um, my interest would be in the society and the human aspect of stress and mental health and, and great ways to address that so we don't see like in juveniles this high amount of stress to perform and allow them a way to learn and be productive and do all these great things but not be overwhelmed with stress and how to manage that stress and and have good outcomes. I think that would be an interesting project to address. Taylor, you should pick that up. There you go. (laughs) Taylor, I need a switch. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Taylor, what, uh, what project ideas come to mind for you? Yeah, you know, one kind of spurs off a, a challenge we just wrapped up here at NIH that I that I helped design, and that was on um, it's called the NIH Prize for Enhancing Faculty Gender Diversity. And what it really did was it provided us an opportunity to surface up those really fantastic approaches, policies, programs at individual universities or small university systems that they put into place to address what was uh, what is a problem in, in gender inequity amongst faculty in the biomedical and behavioral sciences. So we got to go out there and crowdsource what are the best approaches to solving this problem. And I think that that kind of crowdsourcing approach can be applied to other areas, not just, you know, the gender diversity of faculty at universities and, and the biomedical and behavioral sciences, but we could apply that writ large and to address all sorts of areas where perhaps there are inequities and there are people out there who have small-scale, creative, community, or regional-level approaches that we're just not aware of, that if we were to surface all of those best ideas around the country that are just kind of you know, happening at the at a small scale, so they aren't on everybody's radar. We bring them up onto everybody's radar through a crowdsourcing event. That then we can then learn and hopefully take and apply those approaches to other communities around the country. Again, to kind of kind of crowdsource, surface up those best approaches, yeah. and then disseminate them and have them applied to other communities, other regions around the country. It strikes me that that kind of question, you know, sort of what's the best practice, in your case, you're talking about uh, diversity and inclusion, but you could, you could use environmental stewardship, you could use learning, you could literally use all kinds of topics. So I, I kind of like that as a, as a project idea. So I'll check back with you guys in, what, six months or so and see how those are going? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so my last question is one I asked everybody, not everybody is able to, to provide a, a suggestion, but I always ask for book or resource or web or podcast or audiobook types of questions. Around. Is there something that you have enjoyed or have has had an inordinate influence on you that you would recommend to somebody else? And, and it's, not a, it's not a need to have, but it's always, I always like to ask the question. Yeah, um, I, I will caveat. Of course, this does not uh, this is not a federal endorsement of this book by any means. There's a general <laughs> caveat there. But uh, one that I really enjoyed, I, I, I read it earlier this year, is Stephen Johnson's uh, "Where Good Ideas Come From: The Natural History of Innovation." And I thought it was just an excellent analysis through a couple of uh, a series of case studies of what are the environments, what are the types of people the types of diversity of thought of approach that you need to have in order to drive true innovation. 
Uh, and I thought it was just a, a great um, assessment of that. Oh, very nice. Jen, what are your thoughts in this area? You know, I, I don't sit down and read a lot, um, unfortunately, but what I do find influential is when I am connected with a number of different crowdsourcing outfits and they do a lot of different listservs and articles. And I always find it interesting for me to think broader when I read through these articles or their essays. I'm not sure how to describe them where they explore competitions or explore different ways to look at things or explore collaborations and, and partnerships and just getting those ideas from the different vendors or, you know, the different companies that are in the mix of crowdsourcing is always thought provoking for me. And it's, it's stuff I share with my team. Well, that's fantastic. You know, I want to say thank you for, for joining me on the podcast today. This was a, a fun conversation. And, and Jen, I think you even mentioned it, that we could have gone down any number of, of sort of other avenues with the conversation to explore other aspects of crowdsourcing and its connection to collaboration. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Well, I certainly learned a lot from Jen and Taylor today. I appreciate how they shared experience on how crowdsourcing works, some of the interesting and novel projects that they've tried, and some of the things they've learned along the way. It was also kind of fun to contrast the kinds of experiences one agency was undertaking with sort of environmental management types of focus, and the other more focused on human health. Today's conversation emphasized for me how a crowdsourcing approach can really draw together sources of knowledge that would never have come to mind or really been included in sort of more traditional problem-solving approaches. And I'm reminded here of the wedding dress designer putting in their ideas for better personal protective equipment. I was also very appreciative of the advice that both Jen and Taylor offered for organizations that you know might want to get into the crowdsourcing problem for themselves. Maybe the stories of the pipeline sniffing dogs or the Tasmanian devil quagga muscle control will prompt someone to give it a try. It's always a lot of fun to have these collaborative conversations with people like Jen and Taylor. It really lights up my imagination and I hope it lights up yours too. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the episode or this podcast series overall, you know, please tell them about the show or send them a link to the episode. And until the next time, thank you for listening. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.